First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't generate amusing holiday cards, but it will personalize career paths for your people and let you know which suppliers are best so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine Legorio-Chapkin. On today's episode, we take a look back at our favorite What I Know moments of 2020. I'm here with my producer, Josh Christensen. Hey, Christine. Hey, Josh. So we started working on this podcast in March of this year, which was great timing. Well, I mean, when we first, first, first started working on it, it was actually January of this Mm -hmm. year. And the whole idea of the show was to, you'll feature what these entrepreneurs have learned and and to impart some wisdom onto our audience in a a pre-COVID world where we thought everything would be kind of the same as 2019 or in some ways the same and then everything (sighs) went to uh, can i swear on this podcast (laughs) i forget everything went to hell (laughs) so i mean it did though give us this kind of remarkable breadth of of topics to cover as the entrepreneurial community and the business world was so hard hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, We've learned so much this year about resiliency. We've learned so much about the struggles that people go through and how they can come out of them from just a variety of entrepreneurs and industries, right? I mean, we've had, what, uh, 23 incredible guests this year. Who were some of your favorites? Well, thinking back to when we first started this podcast, Captain Scott Kelly, our first guest, was such a wonderful way to start off this series with someone who came on and talked about isolation and and, and what that was like when we were all stuck in our homes with these stay-at-home orders feeling really scared and and that was the way for I know a lot of entrepreneurs out there who whose businesses might have been been shut down temporarily or trying to figure out how to do this while also being stuck at home like the rest of us I think was just a nice way to start off our series and and kind of level set for this this really this new world that we were in yeah, and I think he, I mean, he had some smart coping mechanisms for for how to deal with isolation. And also, I mean, I loved what he said about, I think we're going to want to look back at this time and know we did a good job. You know, he was really inspiring people to take that action and stay home, despite, you know, what, what else they were going through in the world. Um, I loved um, hearing from Eileen Fisher. She's this remarkable entrepreneur who started her, her namesake brand and talked about, you know, being a little bit of an introvert and having to do kind of promotional stuff being outside of her comfort zone. And then there was kind of the opposite type of personality. Uh, Charity Water founder Scott Harrison. I've never talked to a more charismatic person in my <laughs> life. Like he is uh, he is very charming. Yes, and you know, he ta- he told his story of being a, a club kid turned entrepreneur um, and harnessing the power of his own story um, to sell his brand. And what I really loved about Scott Harrison was that his pathway to entrepreneurship was not 
the normal path that most people take. Like, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs we talked about, they in some way knew that they were going to to do this or start their own business at some, at some point in their life from an early, early on and and Scott just it was not that it was really just kind of backed into it which is is really kind of inspiring because I think a lot of entrepreneurs or or people who think maybe they have a good idea are like well I'm you know I didn't go to uh, you know, the Harvard war Business in school. school. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I can't do this, but like you can. And there's so many, there's such a, like a diversity of spirit that is good for entrepreneurship. That's absolutely true. And for this episode, we're going to share some more of those counterintuitive stories and our favorite moments from the past year or from the remarkable entrepreneurs we've spoken with. Like in June, we had the pleasure of speaking with Warby Parker co-founder and co-CEO Neil Blumenthal. He's known as one of the fathers of the modern direct-to-consumer sales model, and his company's done a lot of good in the world through giving back globally. We spoke at a moment in time when entrepreneurship never seemed more risky as the path of the COVID-19 pandemic was very unclear. But despite that entrepreneurs are so often viewed as wild risk-takers, Neil and his co-founder have taken a different approach to risk while building their business. If we ever feel like we have to take this giant leap of faith that we're looking over a cliff at the precipice, we take a step back and try and figure out how can we take smaller steps down the mountain rather than jump off the, the cliff and how do we de-risk what it is that we want to do. Yeah. And aside from taking smaller steps, how do you sort of de-risk? What's your philosophy there? So it's learn as much as possible from uh, relevant experts. So an example um, would be from a pricing perspective. We thought that we could price our glasses at $45, right, instead of four or $500. And we met with a professor um, at Wharton uh, who was a pricing expert while we were at school there. And he looked at us and he said, nah, it's, that's not going to work. And we're like, what do you mean? Like, you know, people love lower prices and we know it's the same quality. He's like, it could be the same quality, but your customers won't perceive it as the same quality, right? The idea that something could be one-tenth the price, but the same quality, that's just, uh, it's outside the realm of believability. And so we walked away and we're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but then he also said, that also whatever you think your cost of goods sold is, whatever you think it's going to cost you to produce those glasses, it'll probably be more. And sure enough, he was right on both accounts. We ended up doing a survey of potential customers where we mocked up the, the product page of a website where it had like the picture of a frame and said, you know, add to cart. And we had a few different versions of this with different price points. And we just asked a very simple question. How likely are you to purchase this pair of glasses? Um, and we found that the willingness to purchase increased with price up until $100, at which point it plateaued and came down. So we knew, oh, there must be a mental barrier at $100. So we should probably price as close to that as possible because actually people will buy more in the 80s or $90 range then at 45. Um, and this is where the art and the science comes into play. We didn't want to price the glasses at $99 because we felt that that sounded too discounty and we weren't trying to create a discount brand. We were trying to create a lifestyle brand that was uh, premium but fairly priced. And so we settled on $95. 
Um, and then also, sure enough, during our design process and our manufacturing process, every time we had a choice, we wanted to do slightly better quality. And our cost of goods ended up being double what we projected in our original business plan. 2020 was an incredibly difficult year for so many businesses. It was a year of retching decisions and uncertainty. But one thing was clear. Strong, decisive leadership has never been more important. When I spoke with Sandra O'Lynn, the founder and CEO of KiwiCo, she had really insightful advice about how to lead, not just with clarity, but with heart and transparency. So I think that it was, for everyone, a really challenging time, right? So we had a period of a lot of uncertainty. We were getting a lot of information and we continue to do that, right? There's a, there's a lot of data and information that was coming at us. A lot of fear and I would say a certain level of turmoil. And so I think the question at that point was, how is it that I can help the team feel more secure? How can I give them kind of the facts in a most in a direct way, but also in an empathetic way? And how do we do that so that then they can become more productive? Because I didn't see any way that somebody could be productive or creative without feeling a level of um, kind of security um, and being on more kind of solid footing. And so the question was, what could I do and what could the company do to help people get there? And so to begin with, what I did is... um, really amplified my communications. And I tend to be the kind of person who likes to have things all wrapped up um, and kind of tied in a bow (laughs) before I present something. And so when it comes to the broader team, I hadn't really shared much about my thinking or my process. And given the situation with the pandemic, I knew that I needed the team to feel connected and feel focused. And so I really started to communicate a lot more often. And I started to communicate more about how I was feeling and the process in which we were making certain decisions. And I think that was something that felt like it was a real stretch for me as a leader. But I think something that was good, it kind of forced me to do that. I think when we were in an office together, I would wrongly assume that people would know what I was thinking sometimes. And that's somehow through osmosis in the office that that would get picked up. Um, And so I became very, very deliberate about my communications. I knew that it was one channel that people would actually be reading and would really be paying attention to. And it was important. Um, It was important to them to know where I stood and where the company stood around things. So I'd say that was a big one was around communication. And another big one was around listening. Um, And so two, three weeks into sheltering in place, I made it a point to meet with everybody on the team. So we have roughly 130 folks on the team now. And I did it in groups of six, seven people at a time. And I actually would do this when we were in, in the office. We used to call them tea times. And Tea times were all about people in the company coming together in small groups with me, and then they could ask me questions, and I would do my best to answer those questions. Well, we really turned that on its head, and these group discussions that we had 
were about listening. And so there are basically two questions that I was asking. One is, how are you doing? And two was, how can I and how can the company support you? And so I think the listening was really important and it continues to be really important because we needed to understand where people were at so we could do a better job of supporting them and then helping them be productive. So that was another way in which, you know, kind of it changed what we used to do um, in response to what was actually happening. 35 Ventures co-founder Rich Kleiman showed us that there is more than one path to entrepreneurship. We hear a lot about Ivy League-educated founders with MBAs or coding whiz kids who drop out of Stanford, but you don't often hear a story like Rich's. I, did, I just got by in high school. I didn't focus in college, and my parents weren't... Um, they, they didn't have money to just throw away in, in sending me to school if they knew I wasn't focused, so they asked me to come back to New York. And at that point, I was out of school. I didn't really have any connections. I didn't really have any focus on what I wanted to do, but I still had big dreams and aspirations. Um, and even then, when I started my quest, like dropping out of college and trying to be entrepreneurial, I didn't have any direction or any real mentors at that time or anyone to put me in the right direction. And, you know, and I made mistakes and I got myself in financial holes and I got myself caught up in and things that were never going to get me focused in the right direction. Um, and I was young. And I think that like being young and immature at times when you're in your early twenties, you're at your peak in some ways, you know, like if you're an athlete, you're considered in your peak or a lot of times some of our favorite artists, they'll say that their first album was their classic album. But I think for like a journeyman entrepreneur like me, cause I'm 43 and I feel like I'm really starting to come into my own is that like, that work early on, it's, it's not, it's not representative of like the best version of you. And, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was trying to stay involved. Yeah, absolutely. There's this sort of myth of entrepreneurship that, you know, it's always someone like quitting their first job and launching this giant thing, right? And and that it just takes off. But no, like most actual entrepreneurship, most successful entrepreneurship takes place when people are in their 40s, maybe even later 50s, uh, after they've had success in the same field that they launched their, their successful venture in, um, which is, it's kind of this myth that gets perpetuated by Silicon Valley right now. Um, but I want to ask you, did, 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 what were those first few you know, jobs in that in their early 20s? And and how did you come to a time that you were actually able to focus on yourself and your own goals rather than, you know, being kind of set back by all of these distractions? Well, I, I think the one thing I always did was I didn't, um, I didn't stay too far away from the world I wanted to be in. I wanted to be in entertainment. I wanted to be in sports. I wanted to be around this kind of fast paced, exciting life that um, growing up in New York, I was exposed to and that I saw as the people that I wanted to be. You know, when I saw executives like Puff Daddy and Jay-Z and Lior Cohen and Jimmy Iovine and Kevin Lyles and Steve Stout on the covers of New York Magazine and XXL and Billboard and saw, you know, the way in which they lived their life and heard them speak, I felt like these were, that was me. And I wanted to stay around it and be around it. But, you know, you you don't like you said you don't 
always, you can't always assume that uh, the journey of an entrepreneur means that you're going to come out of the gate with this technology or this artist that you found or this athlete that you represent or this business plan that you've created. And, and it's just smooth sailing all the way up. And I was able to now at 22 start to put in place connections, uh, a network, experience, work ethic, um, drive, things that I thought I had when I was in high school and trying to be in college and, and, and right out of like dropping out of college, trying different jobs in the restaurant business or trying to, you know, I, I was a bookie when I was in college, you know, I had enough of, uh, the wherewithal to like start that business. And, but it was illegal and it was not going to be a means to anything, but I started to now take all of these kind of, um, different experiences of not succeeding in school, getting in trouble with my bookie operation and say, you know what, I got to get in the game now. And I had that mindset and I went to work at this company, Radical Media and Radical Media is commercial production company, TV, film, branded content. And they were in New York city. And a friend of mine, one of my best friends growing up said, I'm going to bring this TV show idea called the life, which was just behind the scenes of athletes, something that like is every social media channel now, but in the year 2000 was relatively new. And he said, I'm going to bring this to radical media. And the guy who runs radical media, John came in, you know, loves young talent and always has great directors and writers and producers around the office, bringing projects in, let's bring this project to life in. And I was fortunate to be a part of that. And I felt like now I had entered the sports world and Though I was working on a sports TV show on ESPN, I was asked to do the music. And if it sounded fun and it sounded like something that was still connected to the world I wanted to be around. And I asked them what the music budget was and they told me it was like $250,000. And I had never really even imagined that there was money around anything that I was doing that was gonna be those kind of dollar amounts. And I said, well, what happens if I don't spend it all? And they started laughing because we were doing 32 episodes and there was no way to make $250,000 work for 32 episodes. And they say, you can keep it. So at that point, I was set on spending as little as possible so I could keep it. And I built this library of unsigned artists and producers from the city that I got to know, bands that I reached out to, record labels that I reached out to and said, you know, we get your music at the end of this new ESPN show and give you a credit on the screen, but you know, there's really no money. And I just started learning the music business. I built up this like very sought after library of independent artists and producers. I started doing a handful of shows at Radical Media. And even though I wasn't in sports, I started to feel like I was, I could see some light of, you know what, I belong in this world. I like communicating with the people that I'm dealing with every day. And it's okay if I'm a music supervisor for TV and film, because it feels, it feels like it's giving me that exhilaration that I want from from my work like I love I like to think about my work all day I want to think about my work all day and that kind of was the first step in kind of setting me on a path um, that again wasn't direct to where I am now but it was the beginning of the path we'll be right back after a quick break first the bad news 
SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. One theme that has consistently come up over the past year of What I Know episodes is mentorship and how crucial it is to so many founders, especially when they are diving into something new or making a difficult decision. Deirdre Quinn shared a particularly touching tribute to her late mentor when I talked with her last May. You know, uh, uh, Mr. Sue was 20 years older than me. And I always said he was 20 years smarter than me because I do think that wisdom comes with age. And I really respected him. We never had a disagreement. You know, he would tell me what he was thinking. We would discuss it. And then we always, I, I, you know, it, a business partner is like a marriage partner. You, you know, you agree on it and you go, we just, you know, locked arms and, and made it happen. And, and all of those decisions were, you know, he always used to say it's like a dragon boat and we're all rowing in the same direction. Tell me about the dynamic between yourself and Mr. Sue. Were you ever, did you ever find yourself digging in your heels when he said, you know, stay the course or uh, describe what, what that kind of back and forth was like? Well, we had dinner every single night at a place called 70 Mott Street, which I don't even think it's there anymore. He ate the same food every night. He wore the same... He, clothes every day. This guy was so focused that routine was everything to him. So I didn't really like fish, but I wasn't given the choice. This was what was for dinner, you know? And and I guess somewhere along the line, you 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 I did learn a discipline and a routine. He wasn't afraid to work hard, and neither was I. And so the two of us, or the three of us, because she was she is awesome and runs the factory. We just it, it it was just the most incredible partnership. And I do think that I had many years of almost 20 years with him of of not working for some corporate ceo i were i was partners with the practical ceo and you know i was probably um i was the front man he never felt that his english was good enough nobody ever met him pretty much all right. He would send me out and tell me what to do. And, you know, if he came to a meeting, which he rarely did, he wouldn't even say too much. He was a quiet strength. And I, I, I tell you, it's, it, I've never met anyone like that. As this year's Election Day approached, we spoke with a company founder who knows all too well the influence of political content online, Steve Huffman, the CEO of Reddit. It was a place that was targeted in the 2016 election by Russian disinformation campaigns and a hub for Donald Trump supporters. This year, we looked back on how social media companies manage content online, political and not, and how they can do better in the future. From our point of view, that's, there are two dimensions here that we feel very strongly about. Voting is core to our democracy and it's core to Reddit. And having fair elections is something that is sacred and that Reddit wants to play a, a role in facilitating. 
and certainly want to work against forces that would prevent that. And there are a lot of dimensions to this, you know, not just preventing misinformation, but also, you know, sharing the, I think, important information, where to vote, when to vote, how the elections work, all of that, what the options are, all of these things. And, and I know the, the, I think we at, we in society would generally believe that together. There's a, there's a congressional hearing coming up later this month, um, most likely with, with um, a few tech CEOs. Am I, am I correct that you have not been subpoenaed to speak at that? Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> well, how much do you think the government should be regulating on all of this with an eye toward, of course, election stability and um, partisan information flow online? Um, and is it, the, is it the business's responsibility or is it the government's? Well, the challenge is, okay, if you're going to ask me personally, I, yes, the government has a lot of agency here. This is one of the purposes of the government is to host the election and for that election to be fair and credible. So yes, the government has a lot of responsibility here. At the same time, it's the government or people in government who are participating in voter suppression, in gerrymandering, and all of the other facets of undermining a fair election. So the government is the I think, first line of defense, and they're also the first person I would look to to get their act together if they really believe in fair elections. And it is terrifying to me as an American that I think I can credibly make that accusation of our own government, that I don't think all of their hearts are in the right place. In talking with Steve Huffman, he also had some management advice that I think applies to everyone. If the status quo isn't working, you have to do something. Of course, everyone can joke, or be dead honest, about wanting to bid good riddance to 2020. But there are a few ways to look back on this year and see some positive. First, there's the amazing resilience we've all learned that we have and the innovative spirit that's been embodied by the fact that we have vaccines already being administered. There were a lot of social movements that helped shift behaviors and open minds, and a lot that falls into the category of status quo that isn't working. And a lot of people are stepping up and doing something about that. There's so much more to do, inside companies and outside. So here's to 2021. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you're a new listener, welcome. Please hit subscribe to What I Know so you don't miss our next episodes. We'll be back January 18th with more inspiring stories from entrepreneurs and their most poignant advice. If you have a friend interested in startups, entrepreneurship, or evolving as a leader, please send them a link to our show. You can see them all on Inc.com slash podcasts. Also, we'd love it if you could leave us some stars and a review on Apple Podcasts. It just takes a minute and it really helps other people find us. Our producer, who is joining us today and is wearing little elf shoes with jingly bells on the toes, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio Chapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. <laughs>